Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Dr. Blanche Cupido who is a cardiologist with a special interest in congenital heart disease, cardiac imaging, and valvular heart disease. Dr. Capito works out of the Hruteskir Hospital at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, which is one of the country's premier hospitals. It is renowned as the training ground for some of South Africa's best surgeons and nurses. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. To start with... Hruteskir Hospital at the University of Cape Town holds a special place for cardiology. After all, in 1967, Dr. Christian Barnard completed the world's first successful human heart transplant at the hospital, and the Division of Cardiology is the oldest dedicated clinical cardiology unit in sub-Saharan Africa. Currently, you are heading up the division on echocardiography, and you're also involved in the training of cardiology fellows, research technicians, and clinical technicians in image acquisition and interpretation. So can you tell us more about the work that you do, as well as the responsibilities that come with this position? Sure. So um, I'm in a clinical academic post at the University of Cape Town and Cruz Care Hospital. And essentially my work is threefold. Um, the majority of my work is spent doing clinical work, i.e. seeing patients, whether it is in relation to outpatient clinical service like clinics, um, or whether it is inpatient clinical care, such as patients re- presenting to general medicine or to our unit uh, for admission. And then we also do after-hours emergency services for patients who um, have had heart attacks and need to go uh, for coronary angiography. Um, The large part of my work, however, is centered around cardiac imaging. So I do, as you said, I run the echocardiography lab here um, where we basically do cardiac ultrasound of the heart. Um, and a big part of my role is in trying to train uh, more people to do that and to increase uh, the standard of echocardiography that we do. Um, another part of my job also entails running the clinical service for adult congenital heart disease, but we can speak more about, about that a bit later. Um, the second component of my work um, involves training and capacity building, and here um, it requires involvement um, of teaching at undergraduate as well as postgraduate level, so um, the sort of uh, third to sixth year medical students, which are undergrads, and then at postgrad level, um, those uh, candidates going for their first specialization in internal medicine, um, as well as um, people who are already specialists in internal medicine who are subspecializing in cardiology. Um, and then the third component uh, re- revolves around research. Um, and here there are multiple research units linked to our department um, and sort of various areas of research that we can be involved in. That sounds like quite a full plate. <laughs> but Very much so. <laughs> that touches on both the real world as well as nurturing and, and growing specialists within the stream. Yes, that's correct. Um, I think that's one of my uh, that's one of the things that attracted me to this post 
um, in that I, I didn't only want to do clinical work, but one of my big passions is teaching and capacity building, um, training people um, so that we, we've got a scarcity of cardiologists, uh, not only in South Africa, but in Africa. Um, and it's about capacity building for people to go out and actually um, be able to provide services in the areas they find themselves in. Now, you mentioned as one of the three components in the work that you do is that you've got a clinical service which focuses on adult heart disease. And this was a clinic that I understand you established in 2014. Can you elaborate more on this, the, the reason behind forming it, uh, the number of patients you have? Sure. So um, adult congenital heart disease really refers to patients who were born with heart disease um, and who have now grown up and become adults. Um, so this is separate from the usual adult heart disease that we see where we see patients with valve problems or we see people who've had coronary artery disease from their risk factors of smoking. Um, these are kids who are born with um, essentially malformed hearts who've had intervention during their childhood um, and who are now becoming adults. Um, and the importance of this um, field is that it's a new field and it's a growing field. So 10, 15 years ago, um, both surgical techniques as well as general hospital care was obviously a lot um, less advanced than it is now. Um, and for many of the procedures um, that people have done to sort of keep these babies alive during childhood, um, many of those surgical techniques, etc., have advanced so that these kids are now growing up to be adults. And so what we're seeing worldwide is that there's a greater proportion of these children living beyond the age of 18. If you look sort of in the 19, even by 1990, um, many of these kids were, were not surviving to adulthood. And we can now say that up to 85 to 90 percent of children born with congenital heart disease now survives to adulthood. And so it is a new speciality because we didn't have this group of patients before um, and it is a growing speciality and there certainly is a need for it. Um, close to where our hospital is is Red Cross Children's Hospital and they have for many decades been doing up to 400 surge cardiac surgeries a year on, on kids. Um, and of course, when they get to about 16, they're too big for the, the children's hospital. And so what's prompted me to, to start this and to look at this problem was that in 2013, um, soon after I'd qualified as a cardiologist, we were seeing, I was seeing many patients who had been lost to follow up for many years. So they sort of followed up at the children's hospital until they were in their teenage years. And then had been lost to follow up and now represented many years later with complications or with very advanced disease that had really, during that time of no follow-up, been largely neglected. It was also a unique bunch of people in that um, they present with problems that we've not seen before because, like I've said, these people haven't lived that long before. And then secondly, as another group of them presented when they were pregnant, having not followed up for very, very many years. And so it posed quite a large problem, um, which was which I felt I was ill-equipped to deal with, um, and that's uh, what prompted me to go and do a fellowship in this in this area in the UK um, in 2016-2017, um, and we've sort of come back and established a full service now. So we're up to about 500 patients now, um, and the numbers 
as soon as there is a service, suddenly these patients do resurface and uh, our numbers are increasing steadily. Um, we also have an arrangement with the Children's Hospital now that when they get to about 16 years of age, they automatically transition to our service. And so there will hopefully be less fallout of patients along the way. It sounds like a great intervention in terms of, well, A, you've got the new cutting-edge technology which has been able to promote longevity in these patients so that they are seeing adulthood and living longer. And they're not becoming a, a lost generation that after childhood they become a, a, a gap or a, a missing statistic. Yeah, and so um, one of the big driving passions for me was the fact that um, to an extent there's really, if you're not going to follow through on this, there's no point in um, the time, the effort, the money spent in, in, in getting them to the age of 16 if at the age of 16 nothing's going to happen and they're going to get fall off from the medical services. And so the aim really is to maintain um, these young adults in an optimal state of health for as long as possible um, and to deal with problems quickly and effectively when they arise so that they can go on to have fairly normal lives with jobs, with um, you know, getting married and having kids, etc., so that they're able to actually have that sort of full life and not be crippled by their illness um, that could have potentially been preventable. It's wonderful the work that you're doing there, that to, to give people meaning, to give people hope, and to live fruitful lives. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that part of your motivation for for being involved in in various aspects of cardiology whether it be in in the training side, the research side, or or clinical posts, is about development and that there is a scarcity of cardiologists not only in South Africa, but also in Africa. And when I was doing research for this conversation, I looked at the Health Professions Council in South Africa, and it only lists 144 registered cardiovascular surgeons. And I know that obviously doesn't entail the whole spectrum of cardiology, but it seems an incredibly small number for a discipline which is so important. So, um, yeah, so, so surgeons are, are, are actually even a bit, little bit of a rarer beast. So cardiologists, uh, we are the ones who don't do the open heart surgery. We do most of the diagnostics and um and non-surgical intervention, um, but even so, um, probably sitting at about 160, 170 um, cardiologists, um, and, and this is for a country of 55 million people, so that is quite rare. Um, it's it's really difficult in that in our current environment, actually, most of our patients don't have access to private health care and if you look at the registered cardiologists that's just the ones on paper so it may be that you're retired and still registered or you've taken time off and you're still registered that's not counting the number of people actually physically working um, and then secondly um, there's actually fewer than 30 um, cardiologists in the state sector in the in the public sector in South Africa, so in this country are in the private sector, um, and yet we're sitting with a situation where most of our population actually doesn't have private care, and so you've got fewer than 30 cardiologists 
really looking after millions of of patients. So yes, because according to the last time I looked, there are only I think fourteen percent of the country are on medical aid. So if we've got eighty six percent of the population and being served by fewer than thirty people, thirty yes. people. That's that's insane. Wh- why? <laughs> Um, so there are a number of I think there are a number of things. Um, the there are very few um, cardiac training centres, firstly, around the country. Um, and they're not well staffed. Um, there's a paucity of state posts, um, and and so it's very difficult. Um, and in some areas, it's very difficult to have people in those posts. Um, given the sort of lack of support and lack of, um, um, yeah, sort of not just support in terms of, of financial support, but in terms of um, other colleague support that they may have in those areas, and so it becomes a very difficult, um, it becomes a very difficult thing to manage. Um, the second thing is that it takes about um, three years to subspecialize in cardiology. Um, and so we're not producing terribly many cardiologists uh, per year. It's probably about f- uh, five or six per year. Um, when they then exit their training programs, um, there are no available state posts. And since you have to feed your family and you have to earn a living somehow, you then take up a private post or you leave the country. Um, so the generation, the lack of, of state posts, is is one of the big the big issues the lack of development of the academic centers and the lack of development of state facilities those are significant issues um unfortunately we're not going to be able to solve those today (laughs) but what made you become a cardiologist so it's actually really interesting. So actually, one of my biggest inspirations um, was our previous, the previous head of the cardiac clinic, Professor Pat Comerford. Um, and um, I was in a, I was a fourth year student, and I was in a tutorial. Um, and you know, he listened to the heart. He heard all kinds of things, and he could come up with the fact that this patient had a particular valve problem. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. Um, and and for me, it was it was really great because this lady I saw a few weeks later, she'd gone on and had her valve replacement, and she was so much better. She went from really being incapacitated and short of breath from lying in the bed to be able to walk around. Um, and for me, it was such a striking difference, and it was something I thought I really wanted to be part of. Um, and that's the thing with cardiology is that you you almost have a little bit of instant gratification. You've got someone who's really, really ill and you can open an artery and they can be fine a few days later. So so there's, you can see the, you can almost see the fruits of your labor almost immediately and that's really rewarding. Um, and also the nature of it being, uh, there being emergencies, et cetera, it's, it's no, no day is the same. I find it terribly exciting. So every day is different, every day is exciting, which is great. And another thing, when I was observing the, the 144 uh, cardiovascular surgeons, there were very few female names. And as you've mentioned, that on cardiologist cardiologist side, there are approximately 160 to 170 people in, in uh, registered and in practice. Why do so few women specialize in the field? Um, so... 
once again, I think um, women enter, it, it's quite a long road to do cardiology. So um, after you've done your undergraduate degree, you usually do, um, now it's two years of internship, one year of community service. And following that, there will be a period where people work as medical officers in hospitals um, while they are waiting for training posts for to specialise. Um, and the first step with do, wanting to do cardiology is so you would then have to specialise in internal medicine, and that's a four-year program. And then subsequent to that, there's usually another little bit of a wait and to try and get onto, like I said, very few training programs around the country to get onto the cardiology training program, which will be another three years. And so when you're adding all of those things in, by the time you finish, if you started straight out of high school, you're probably going to be about mid-30s, um, you know, when you when you fully qualify as a cardiologist, somewhere between 33 and 35. Um, and... And for a lot of women, I think that's a stumbling block in terms of planning for families. Um, the training is rigorous um, in that you there's a lot of emergency work, so you spend a lot of time at work after hours. It's often unpredictable. Um, and so I think those have been the traditional deterrents of why women wouldn't want to do cardiology, I think. And those are barriers that we see repeated in other disciplines, not just in, in the medical field, but in any type of professional program or, or process environment where in order to get ahead in your career, you've got to work and gauge this balance between time to raise a family and, and, and pursuing your aspirations. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, in, in South Africa, all of the training occurs in the state sector. So you can't train to become a cardiologist in the private sector. So those 30 people who are working as state cardiologists are also doing all the training of future cardiologists at present. And clearly that's something else that one needs to look at is perhaps that is something that needs to change given the majority of cardiologists are in the private sector. So what happens then is that in an environment where you've got such a great demand in terms of the patient load, so few people training you, and um, you you don't you don't have much flexibility in terms of your time, and your time really um, it's very difficult to put boundaries down when there is such a great need around you, um, and that I think is one of the the stumbling blocks. I think it gets better once you've qualified as a consultant. Um, and you're not doing the training and you're not going through that rigorous process. Um, but during the training time, um, it's, it's very difficult to put boundaries down as much as you would want to and create work-life balance. Now, as we're a gender-based show, one of the, the questions that we ask is, is the types of gender challenges that people experience and more from a point of others, other people who listen to us to be able to overcome similar types of challenges instead of having to, to walk that same journey. You spent a period of time in the UK where you were focusing on the, um, the, the congenital adult uh, disease training work. Was gender bias a factor when you were in the UK? And is there a difference between the way that women are treated as doctors in South Africa compared to England? Um, I'll probably say um, 
the gender bias issue, I think, is a universal one, um, and it just manifests slightly differently in various in various places. So, um, I don't think um, there are very many places or many situations where gender bias is overt. I think it's something that is it's an unconscious bias that that creeps into um, various aspects of one's work. Um, and I'm going to divide it into intrinsic and extrinsic ones because I think there's things that we do as women that also sabotages ourselves sometimes. Um, and then there's obviously the environment we find ourselves in um, where there is a move to changing that environment. Comparing South Africa to the UK, I think the UK was a little bit easier given the fact that in every work environment there was a little bit more of a balance between males and females. Um, yes, certainly um, we, we've not previously and we haven't subsequently had another female cardiologist certainly in our division um, and in South Africa to have female colleagues is, is, is quite rare and obviously in the UK there was more of that so, so the ratio is a bit better. Um, but that's also just the product of the fact that they have more people. So, so that was that was probably the main driving force. Um, and so you didn't feel as isolated. And I don't think there, there's a particular distinction, rather than the fact that you feel a little bit more isolated if you're the only female around. Um, the way in which we were treated there compared to here, I think, is is virtually the same. I don't think it's a, um, a, a big difference. Um, when it comes to um, some of the challenges, I think um, most of it revolves around the fact that um, you know you, you the lack of female role models becomes a big thing, especially when one sort of enters the the mid career level. Um, and here, I've been quite fortunate to to have. Um, two very good female role models who are not directly linked to our department but sort of peripherally work through our department. Um, and, and it's been wonderful and that gives one the inspiration to also, um, to also mentor other young females coming up because I think it's only through that sort of culture that we're going to move forward in general. Um, yeah. That's a significant uh, technique and, and mechanism to bring people up the pipeline and create uh, the support because when you've walked that journey you're able to to share some of those pain points what would be your advice to young women who want to follow in your footsteps and either men enter the medical profession or go on to pursue cardiology as a specialty um, I think one of the, the the big things is really to to have a plan right up front to to know what your what your end goal is going to be. Um, you may not necessarily land up there or you may take a different path, but I think especially in planning your first sort of 10, 15 years of your career um, that you should think ahead. Um, and this is very practical advice now, mainly re revolving around starting a family, I think. I think that's an important thing that... Um, you have people who potentially want to do it but are worried about that. They want to start a family. They don't know when they're going to do it, how they're going to do it time-wise, etc. Um, I think that's that you must all, you must factor all of that into your long-term, your sort of on your mid-term plan, your five and your ten-year plan. Um, factor those things in and then work around it. Um, 
I think the other thing is uh, rather than sort of stumbling from year to year and sort of not knowing what next year is going to be and then and have a lot of because because one of the big things is you're going to be planning your exams, you're going to be planning your exit strategy, you're going to be planning what you're going to do afterwards, um, and it's good to keep all of those things on the timeline as well. Um, and the second thing I would actually say to people is if you do choose to not have children while you're training, um, for women, I think this is for women in any sort of environment where um, it becomes an interplay between family life and you know, things like considering seeing a fertility specialist, freezing eggs, planning ahead, um, not dealing with those things when they arise because you could be in a situation where you find yourself suddenly now 10, 15 years down the line and you kind of haven't given things thought because your days were so busy that you haven't thought about your long-term plan. Um, and so I would say keep the big picture in mind and then plan accordingly. That's such a structured approach and I think so important about having planning and, and proper processes in place that it's not thinking uh, on going from day to day, but really thinking ahead for, mm. for the benefit of your life. Mm. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the, on the 31 meter band. Also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Dr. Blanche Capito, who is a cardiologist at the Ghouta Skier Hospital at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Capito, as a gender-based program, we constantly focus on the importance of building female leadership capacity for the future of women, both in our country and continent. And one of the things that I found quite interesting, which was argued by the former president of Mauritius, Amina Gurib Fakim, she said that woman in power has got much more impact on enabling other women in the continent as opposed to just women in leadership. So how do you see the dynamic of women in leadership or women in power in South Africa, whether it's in the political, medical, academic or professional arena? I think that's quite a that's quite a tricky and difficult question. Um, in that, I, I certainly agree that women in power have the ability to make a much greater impact in terms of policy change, in terms of um, outreach, in terms of the resources to make change happen. But then it needs to filter down to the everyday person. Um, I think. In every aspect of work, um, local female leadership is extremely important in terms of capacity building. Um, I can just think as a, as a young female child, um, and I grew up on the Cape Flats in Cape Town, um, you, you aspire to, to, the, to seeing the woman in power and wanting to be that. But the thing that enables you to be able to do that potentially are the local female leaders around you. They're the stepping stones that help get you to the women in power that you've seen and aspire to. And so there I think that um, there needs to be some form of platform or network um, in terms of how we how we train, how we even start socializing girls when, they, when they're younger in terms of um, their aspirations, in terms of the things they can and can't do. Um, and, and I think that's important. So 
um, I think it's a, an entire stepwise approach that requires women at every level in a little girl's life all the way up um, to be contributing to um, those aspirations, um, to be contributing to um, the steps that she takes forward. I look at your perspective and it, it's it's such a foundation aspect where you've got young girls becoming women and the mental blocks that that they start to learn from negative perceptions of what is possible, uh, what's not possible, and they don't look ahead. Uh, that they, that becomes a, a barrier towards their success. Now, reflecting on yourself for a moment, I'd like to ask you about your personal journey. So. Some of the guests who've been on the show, who've all reached tremendous achievements in their respective careers, talk about some of the factors that have contributed to, to their successes, being hard work, uh, perseverance, or other aspects. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? So, um, I think it's, it's, it's two things that sort of marry. Um, the one is is obviously the work that you do and the work that you put in. Um, and the contributors to those things as well would be family, friends, um, support that you may get from very many people. Um, but those, all of your hard work and all of your hard efforts, um, if it's not met with um, opportunity as well, um, then, that, then that can also be in vain at times. So I think it's a combination between two things. It's the effort you put in as well as the opportunities that present itself. Um, as an individual, I think our role is to um, maximize our ability to seize the opportunities by improving ourselves and, and working hard and, and trying to achieve the things we want to, um, and to be able to, to, to see those opportunities and take them when they present themselves. Um, but I think what we can do externally is to create opportunities for young people who, who will be in a similar sort of um, boat as us um, in order to be able to take those opportunities. So I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, for me, growing up, I would say um, my parents obviously um, were, were pivotal in, um, in getting my drive going. They were both teachers. They were both um, very studious. They were uh, a little bit strict. Um, but, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, but I but I'm really thankful for that. And and they were very uh, very diligent in in assisting in my and, and their entire drive in life was to to educate me and our sisters. Um, and so so that's what they worked towards very very frantically. Um, and we saw that desire in them, and the and the reason they did all of that, and so um, and so yeah, and so that's what sort of happened in our household. Um, and then the second big thing I think that contributed a lot to to where I've landed up is is actually a political event. Um, in 1991, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. I was in grade um, I was in grade seven in 1990 and I was going to high school and um, and the first school, one of the first schools that opened um, to non-white scholars in the country was Plumstead High School um, and it was an English school and I'd been schooled in Afrikaans prior to that 
so but my parents decided we're going to bite the bullet and I'm just going to have to change over and this is what we're going to do now so um and yeah I went to I went to one of the first sort of model C schools and and I think yeah I think that was a big stepping stone toward opportunity that my parents recognized um and made happen for me um and and yeah I think it all sort of happened at the right time. You mentioned earlier as one of the key guidance for you is is about having a, a long-term strategy, a long-term plan. It sounds as though as you were growing up, your parents were instrumental in helping direct that path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my, my dad in particular, um, they were... They were very good at um, and seeing where they wanted to be and how to get there and and what to do and making sacrifices along the way and they they actually did that in very many aspects of their lives um, and so that's sort of the milieu that you grow up in and you start doing the same thing. Um, I think that's yeah I think that's one of the things I've learned from them. It's um, it's about the it's about the end game and and how you're going to get there rather than. Um, I, I often have to remind myself of that when things get a bit rough at the time when you sort of feel like you're a little bit sinking. Um, it's easy to also give up and, and, and not carry on. But, but if you remember what your end game is, then, you know, it really gets you through. You mentioned growing up that in your community, local women are an important facet uh, as, as an impact factor on women in power. You've mentioned your mom as being key in in terms of her support and and being a teacher who have been some of the other strong women in your life so um yes i've got quite a few and and i've realized that i continue to have quite a few um uh, so my my mom obviously my mom went back to teaching uh when i was only two months old um and um and i was then left in the care of um a lady who who lived close to where my mom worked, um, Rachel, and Rachel's looked after me basically from when I was two months old, and even now, if I get stuck, I can any time phone her, um, and and that's been instrumental for you know she, um, as well in terms of um, she had very similar values to my parents, um, and she became a second mother to me as well. Um, then there was um, and also now in recent years, I would say. Uh, two mentors who've become very, very dear friends of mine, uh, Professor Karen Sliwa and Professor Liesl Wilker, um, both women who are, uh, one is a cardiologist, the other is a pediatric cardiologist, who have been who have been leaders in the field of cardiology, both at a national and international level, and who've really helped me tremendously navigating um, the difficulties of a career path as a woman in cardiology. So I'm immensely grateful to them as well um, over the last couple of years, I suppose, to to really help me in the work context, but also in my personal life. And then I've got two fantastically wonderful uh, friends in academia as well who we train together, um, and both of them are also, Nelisa and, and Joe, also doing fantastically well in their careers and and we navigate the difficulties together so it's good to have that uh, support network as well. It's a fantastic support network on, on professional, on, on personal 
nurturing a trusted environment so that you can grow and you've got that enabling structure around you. Now, lastly, as we close the conversation today for Youth Month, could you please share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to young ladies in the continent that are listening to the program? Sure. Um, I think the most important thing I'd like to say to them really is that there is nothing you are not capable of doing if you set your mind to it. Um, and I think, um, you know, you are, you're far stronger than you think you are. Um, and, and the important thing is despite hiccups every now and again and feeling down and defeated every now and again, you know, um, women women are strong. We get up and we keep going. Um, and I think we're built to do that. So um, I really think set your mind to something and, and just go for it. There's nothing you can't achieve. Great words of inspiration, especially for Youth Month. Just go for it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Sure, it was a pleasure. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we've been talking to Dr. Blanche Capito, who is a cardiologist at the Hooterskier Hospital, University of Cape Town.